Let's open our Bibles to the epistle of Jude. Hear ye the words of the Lord. Verse 16 took up another list of the character traits of the wicked. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. A contrast comes in verses 17 and 18. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. In 25 short verses, the apostle Jude tells us that there would creep into churches pretenders who do not have the Spirit of God, who are not truly saved, who do not bear fruit, and he describes them in many different ways. He promises judgment upon them, and he exhorts us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, because they will try to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And so here in these two verses is another reminder. We had a reminder in verses 14 and 15 from the prophet Enoch. This reminder is from the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, remember ye the word which was spoken. You were warned that this was going to happen. And we should not be surprised when men depart from us, when men no longer believe what they profess they believed the previous Sunday, and they leave us. We should not be surprised because we have epistles like Jude telling us it will happen and other places in the New Testament that tell us it will happen. If it doesn't happen in a church, then there's something wrong with that church. Because the truth of God is such that it divides men. It separates men. They're going to go elsewhere because they have their own agenda, because they come upon some other idea of men, and they follow it rather than the Word of God. And so the warning is here, right in the middle. You know, I hope you can notice every two or three verses, there's one line of thought, then another, then back, then another. We have traits of the wicked... Judgment coming. Traits of the wicked, you were told that it was going to happen. Traits of the wicked, earnestly contend against them. And so here we have a warning from Jude that they had been told about this before. Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before. We have to remember the things that we are taught. And that remembering them is not just being able to quote a few Bible verses. You must remember the warnings of Scripture so that when the events that the Bible foretells come to pass, you are not alarmed or surprised because you remember the prophecy. One of my favorite things to tell those who are baptized is this. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace. When a man gets in a pulpit and says that Jesus wants peace. He better define himself very carefully because Jesus said, I came not to bring peace. I came to bring a sword and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. The sword of the Lord Jesus Christ will come down and separate. And Jesus goes on to describe those relationships in Matthew 10 verses 34 through 37. He will cut between father and son. He will cut between mother and daughter. And if a man does not love the Lord Jesus Christ more than his son or more than his father, or a woman does not love Jesus Christ more than her daughter or more than her mother, 
They cannot be my disciple. It's impossible, Jesus said, because the true cost of discipleship is such. But you need to remember that. If you haven't read it, thought upon it, meditated upon it, and absorbed that into your soul, and laid your faith to rest upon it, then when it happens to you, you think some strange thing has happened. But it's not strange at all. You're actually having the Bible's prophecies fulfilled in your life. That's right. And it should cause you to rejoice rather than to grieve. It should cause you to understand this puts me in good company rather than in bad company. This is an evidence that I'm doing the will of God, not that I'm going against the will of God. This is God's dealing with His saints in the world, not His dealings with His enemies. And so we have the warning here, Beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. And there we have that word ungodly again that we had four times in verse 15. Let me show you two of them. There's many warnings by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. There are many, but let's go to one by Paul and let's go to one by Peter since Jude's giving us this one. That'll give us a witness in the mouth of three witnesses. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, and he has called for the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him, and he reminds them of what kind of a ministry he had among them. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. These are some of the words he used. Verse 17, he called the elders together. Verse 18, he begins to speak to them. Verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves... And to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, for three years I did not stop warning you day and night that there were two sources for enemies that would come in and try to destroy the flock. Some men would come from the outside. Grievous wolves shall enter enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 29. Grievous wolves. These aren't my words. These are the Lord's words. They're wolves. Untamed Wild dogs by wolf species. The metaphor is dangerous animals would creep in among the flock of sheep, the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ, and would devour some of them. Then the other enemy would be from their own selves. That's why he said, take heed to two things. Take heed to yourselves and take heed to all the flock 
over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. You first better be watching your own souls and your own steadfastness that you are holding fast to the faithful word which was once preached to the saints. Then you need to be on the lookout for others that will come in from the outside. But back to those that were already on the inside, it says in verse 30, also, meaning this is the second category of enemies of the church, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things. These aren't our choice of words. These are God's choice of words. Any doctrine that does not match up with what is taught in the New Testament is perverse. Because it's perverted the right way of truth. It's perverted the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. They want a following. They have their own agenda. They want to present their ideas. They will speak those perverse things to get others to follow them. Brethren, for three, day, for three years I was among you, and I did not stop warning you day and night that this was going to happen. And I did it with tears. Now, there's churches today that stand for so little, they would never know if someone was speaking something perverse or not. Their doctrinal statements are so weak and so watered down and so full of compromise, the average member in the pew does not know that something is being said that is contrary to what that church is committed to as a body of knowledge and doctrine. So we have to be established on what the Bible teaches as the truth. For here's the warning that men will come from the outside, wolves will come in to scatter the sheep, and some will arise from the elders of Ephesus. And you know, we come over to Revelation chapter 2, and it says that the church at Ephesus had tried some that said they were apostles and found them to be liars. And we went over that a few Wednesday nights ago. There is no apostle living today. There is no apostle in Greenville County. There is no apostle in the United States of America. There is no apostle on earth. There was not an apostle in the 18th century. There was not an apostle in the 13th century. There was not an apostle in the 8th century. There are no more apostles. The last apostle was Paul. As of one born out of due time, that was the end of the apostles. But that was a sideline. Any church, any denomination, any religious group or following that has an apostle is manifestly wrong. Amen. Let's go to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 and read another apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave this same warning that we need to remember so that we are not surprised or alarmed. When you see things happen in our church, the greatest fear that I have are that the sheep... The sheep will get scared, and they'll start running around, they'll run into a thorn bush, they'll run off a cliff, they'll run and drown themselves in their watering trough, but the sheep will get upset because they have forgotten the warnings that have been repeatedly stated from this pulpit from God's Word. And so we're going over them right now. God sent us to the book of Jude before we knew we had any application of it. God sent us to Jude. And this little 25-verse epistle is warning us that this was common among the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be prepared for it. But here's how Paul puts the warning. Here's how Peter puts the warning. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll read the first four verses. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both, both the first epistle and the second epistle, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Do you see the emphasis on remembering? Was the, was the word remembered used in Jude? Was it used in Acts 20? Is it used right here? You must remember these things. Then when things happen that match up with the description 
We aren't moved by it. We just know what we ought to do. We're able to identify it. We're able to go forward without thinking the Lord's forsaken us. The fact that the Lord exposes things proves that He hasn't forsaken us. Thank you, Lord. I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Are these all apostles getting together to tell you that we all agree on this matter, that this has been spoken by the Lord, been spoken by the holy, holy prophets, and been spoken by the apostles? Remember, Jude said, remember that the apostles, the Lord and Savior, have said this. And Peter says the same thing. Because Jude was an apostle talking about Peter an apostle. Peter was an apostle talking about Jude an apostle. They're all together. Because there's one author of the Holy Bible. And it's God the Holy Spirit. But there were numerous writers. Here's the warning. Be mindful of this. Remember this. Knowing this first. That there shall come in the last days scoffers. Walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Scoffers using scornful, unlearned retorts against the truth. Scoffers making fun of and mocking the truth of God's word. We get mocked for our stand on doctrine and holiness because the religious world today are habitual compromisers. We get mocked as God and Jesus Christ being different than the way we preach them because they have already accepted another Jesus. We get mocked about the way we preach about judgment because they distort God's grace and they preach universalism. The most common doctrine of salvation today is universalism. Do you know what that means? Everyone's going to heaven anyway. So what's the difference? As long as we all love Jesus, as long as we all talk about Jesus, as long as you don't kick your dog at night, we're all going to heaven. That isn't what the Bible teaches. The little epistle of Jude tells us something very different, doesn't it? It tells us that there were men before of old ordained to condemnation, and for them is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. They mock the relevancy, the relevancy of Scripture to the modern world, for they reject moral basics. They reject moral absolutes. So they reject the Scriptures as they mock us. Are you kidding me? You believe every word in the King James Bible? I like that sound. Amen! Thank you for identifying my problem. They mock us and make fun of us. Back to the little epistle of Jude. Brethren, the the clock is back there spinning like it's a top at a circus. Verses 17 and 18, I hope you understand them. Beloved, remember, remember, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just gave you Paul's, I just gave you Peter's. Both of them said to remember the same thing and to be mindful of it. How that they told you there should be mockers. Peter called them scoffers, mockers, in the last time. Paul called them wolves, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. 
They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They water down the doctrinal claims of the New Testament to allow a different standard of living. Well, that's just my old-fashioned grandma. You know what grandmas are like. That's my grandma that thinks we need to wear our skirts below our knees. That's my grandma that thinks we shouldn't show off our little bottoms with our straight skirts. That's just grandma. Remember that there's a generation coming that would walk after their own ungodly lusts instead of after the Word of God. Right. You, know, you know my grandpa. He always wants you to say yes, sir, and no, sir. He always wants you to stand up when somebody that's older than you comes into the room. All those things, they want to change it and modify it and water down the Word of God. Is that found in the Bible? The stuff that I'm referring to, is it found in the Bible? Yes, the older women are to teach the younger women to be... It starts with C, and you haven't read it this week in the newspaper. What is the word? Chaste. What are you supposed to do before the hoary head, according to the Bible? When a man with gray hair comes into a room, what are you supposed to do? Get off your butt and stand up. Rise up before the hoary head. The Bible says that. They walk after their own ungodly lust. They're watering down the whole religion of God. We have to go on. Verse 19, these be they. Here is another list. Jude, haven't you given us enough? Jude, haven't you described these men with enough character traits? No. These be they who separate themselves. They go out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. 1 John 2, 18 and 19. They separate themselves by pretending that they're holier than us. In Isaiah chapter 65, it describes them as having a, we make a stink because they think that they're better than we are. They separate themselves. They go out. They want to follow their own agenda rather than the agenda of God's Word. So they separate. They're sensual. What does it, word, what does it mean to be sensual? It means to be following your feelings and your lusts rather than the spirit. The sensu- sensuality right. is following your senses. It's being worldly oriented, fleshly oriented, instead of heavenly oriented and spiritually oriented. They're sensual. They do what feels good. They preach what feels good. They cater to that in their churches. There are baseball teams, basketball teams, recreational leagues, motorcycles, lock-ins, swimming parties, and all sorts of garbage like that. Where is that ever found in a New Testament? Young people don't need that. They're already doing too much of that in our generation. They need to have a few minutes at least in a week's time of 168 hours to be reminded of God's Word. They're already playing enough. So they're sensual, having not the Spirit. That's a pretty summarizing verse, isn't it? These be they. These mockers that would come in the last time and mess up the churches of Jesus Christ. Separate themselves. They keep forming new denominations, new names. Have you noticed how we're leaving the Southern Baptist Convention? Oh, really? What is your doctrinal conviction that you're leaving the Southern Baptist Convention for? Because we don't want to be called Baptists anymore. Because people see the word Baptist on our sign, they get discouraged and they don't come. 
We want Catholics and Lutherans and others to be comfortable in our church, so it's going to be called Southside Fellowship. In fact, we don't even want them to think it's church. So we're going to take the word church out of our name, so that when they come in and we have our light show going and the praise band is up front and the little girls are dancing in their skimpy clothes, they won't feel like they're in church. How many of you have seen the billboards around town? If you're tired of doing church, then you ought to come to New Spring. If you're tired of doing church, then why don't you go to Brookwood? That's how they advertise. Doing, you know what they think about doing church? It's sitting like you are and hearing preaching from the Word of God. Because the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves... Oh, there's plenty of them out there. They shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, wanting those teachers to scratch the lusts of their flesh with fables, rather than the truth of God's Word. They'll be turned away from the truth of God's Word unto fables. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. There's an indictment against them in several different ways. Their own agenda is more important than the agenda of the New Testament. They operate by their feelings instead of their faith. We need to set our eyes on heaven and not on our feelings. We need to stay and serve, not to depart. It should be as hard to leave a church of the Lord Jesus Christ as you would leave your spouse. That's right. You should never leave your spouse without some very significant, overwhelming, powerful reason from God's Word. Amen. And that is so limited, it's hardly worth stating. But you should never leave a church without something like that either. The Bible tells us that the God has added to the church such as should be saved. The, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has put us together into one body where we are drinking and partaking of one spirit. For us just to blow off that relationship with the rest of the bodily members, why don't you give me a chainsaw and let me illustrate it on your physical body? I'll fire that chainsaw up and cut your leg off. And then we'll take that leg and we'll throw it into the woods. And we'll see how effective... Luke, did you like that illustration? I do try to reach the younger ones in the audience once in a while. I saw you, son. It's okay. It gives me encouragement that maybe I'm I'm getting to you. We fire up a chainsaw, we cut off a leg, and we throw the leg into the woods. Because God describes a church like a body. See, this is like a church. I got a hand over here and a hand here and two different legs and a head, eyes and an ear. And they all work together. And see, in this room, there's a whole bunch of church members, and they can all work together very good. But if one church member just decides to cut a leg off and throw it out in the woods, then I can't get around very well, Luke. Do you understand that? And that's what, a church, what happens to a church when some of its members leave. Right. Verse 20. Look at the word that we start with. But... But, this is wonderful, and I preached it to you, how long ago was it? I preached these next two verses to you two years ago. And it was a wonderful day in the Lord, for those of you that can remember. Some of you have told me it was one of your favorite sermons. But ye, beloved, in contrast to those in verse 19, who separate themselves, who are sensual and have not the Spirit, watch the contrast. And this is why I have been telling you throughout this epistle... It is not just that we want to learn things 
that others do so we can mark them and avoid them. We want to learn things that others do that we won't do them so that we can be separate. But is a disjunctive. When you find two sentences connected by a but, the second sentence is going to be in contrast to the first sentence. There's going to be some antagonism there. There's going to be a difference that's being described. Now, we had the wicked described in verse 19, but there's going to be a different description in verse 20 and 21, and it's these things in 20 and 21 that we want to do. But ye, beloved, you are not the cloudless, I mean, the, the waterless clouds. You are not the wandering stars, beloved. You don't have the mist of darkness reserved for you forever. You are the beloved of God. My dear beloved brethren, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. The church is built by what every member contributes by helping the whole body believe the one doctrine, the one gospel, the one faith. Building up yourselves. Do you listen attentively here? Do you read your Bible to learn the doctrine? Do you get your questions answered? Do you encourage each other in the basics of our faith? Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. It's called the holy faith because it was given by the holy Lord Jesus Christ and the holy apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's called the Holy Bible that gives us this holy faith. It's called your holy faith because it's the plural possession of the churches and saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. We want the most holy faith. We don't want a decent faith. We don't want a modern faith. We don't want a comfortable, comfortable faith. We want the most holy faith. Amen. Even if we end up in a telephone booth. Who said that? He's sitting up here in the second row on the right. Even if we end up in a telephone booth, we want the most holy faith. But we need to be building each other up on that. Right. Look what's happened. We need to be building each other up on it so that we are steadfast and strong. And I commend every single one of you that know that Jesus Christ is God. Amen. Every one of you that know we worship on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. Right. We don't care who named it Sunday. We don't care if it was Moon Day, but that's Monday. We can't get that one. We don't care if it's Saturn's Day. That's Saturday. We don't care. We worship on the Lord's Day. But have you, have you built yourself up, your wife up, your children up, and the others in this church on their most holy faith? We are the pillar and ground of the truth, brethren. We cannot waver. We cannot change. You don't tie ropes and chains around a pillar and jerk it out with a big pickup truck and think you're going to stick another one in without that building shifting. We don't change. When the Lord brings us something with overwhelming evidence, we will consider a change. But until then, we will earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. But brethren, are you building yourselves up? Are you reading the Bible? Are you meditating? Are you hearing these things? Do you consider these things? Do you search the Scriptures to know that this is what's taught in the Bible? So that when these men that will creep in, pop up in our midst, you're not moved. Because you're well established, your feet are planted on a rock, and you will not slide. This is why Jude is in the Bible. But ye, beloved, instead of separating ourselves, what is it? What do we do? We build each other up on the most holy faith. Instead of running off with our own agenda, 
we're building up the most holy faith. But ye beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Well, that's a big contrast, isn't it? What does it say in verse 19 about the relationship of the wicked with the Holy Spirit? Having not the Spirit. But we're supposed to be praying in the Spirit. And we've been over it before, brethren, so I cannot belabor the point. To pray in the Spirit is to be submissive to the Spirit. Seek to be filled with the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to fill you. Confess your sins. Submit your will to the will of God through the Spirit and through His Word. And you are praying in the Holy Ghost. We want to pray in the Holy Ghost because those are the only prayers that are effectively heard. Because the Holy Ghost prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Blessing one. Blessing two. The Holy Spirit prays for us according to the will of God. When you're praying and you're wondering if you're praying the will of God, God will take care of that through the Holy Spirit. Both of those points are in Romans chapter 8. About verses 24 through 27. So we pray in the Holy Ghost. We do have the Holy Ghost. We confess our sins so that we don't grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. We submit ourselves to the will of the Spirit of God. We ask the Spirit to fill us, to lead us, to bless us. We pray for the Spirit of illumination, like Paul prayed for that Spirit for the Ephesian saints. And that's how you pray in the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul said, once you've taken all the armor that a Christian should have on, and he wants to stand against the wiles of the devil, what is the activity he's supposed to be engaged in? Praying once a week. Praying always with how much prayer and supplication? All prayer and supplication for how many saints? All saints. Because that's what we need. This is how we fight. Building up yourselves in your most holy faith. Are we building each other up in the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ according to what we have learned from the New Testament Scriptures? Are we praying in the Holy Ghost? That's totally different from those in verse 19. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Rather than worrying about our feelings, rather than worrying about loving others, that's not our priority. It's to keep ourselves in the love of God. That is not you keeping yourself being loved by God. That is you keeping yourself loving God. Because you can depart and lose your love of God. Hebrews chapter 3 says that we ought to exhort one another daily. While it is called today, let any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. We are to keep ourselves in love of God. When you get too enthralled with this world, you start loving it too much. When you get too enthralled with your family, you love your family too much. Your job, you love it too much. And so you leave the love of God. And these are men who are sensual. They love sensual things that satisfy the lust of their flesh. We oppose that by keeping ourselves in the love of God. We need to stir ourselves up daily, personally, maritally, family-wise, and church-wise, to love God more and more. Get ready for it next Sunday if God continues to direct my mind. We will deal with two simple commandments next Lord's Day. The first commandment and the second commandment. Love of God and love of neighbor. Because that summarizes everything the Bible has to teach us. I like it when the Lord makes things simple. That's a pretty simple outline. But keep yourselves in the love of God. Because there's everything trying to steal your affections. Family tries to steal it. Marriage tries to steal it. Didn't the Apostle Paul say that the man who is not married cares more for the things of the Lord than the man who's married? And the woman the same? Because everything tries to steal your affections. Therefore, he said, let those that are married be as though they 
are not married. Because we've got to have priorities in our lives to keep ourselves in the love of God. So much more can be said on that, but it was said on that. And if you're convicted that you want to know those four things in verses 20 and 21 better, then go online and find the sermon from two years ago and listen to them. Oh, it's so different from... I love verses 19 through 21. 19 describes the wicked. They separate themselves. We build each other up on the one faith God's given us. They're sensual. We keep our senses directed toward God and the next and the point that's coming. They have not the Spirit. We pray in the Spirit. The difference is great. Is the difference great between you and the wicked? Now, the difference is great between verse 19 and verses 20 and 21, but I'm asking you, is that difference as great in your life as it is as it's written here? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. Is there a great chasm between me and the wicked? Do I pray in the Holy Ghost? Do I keep myself in the love of God? Do I build up myself in the church in the most holy faith? And am I looking for this thing? Verse 21. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Is that looking for the mercy of election? No, that was done before the world began. Is that looking for the mercy of Jesus to die on the cross? No, he had already done that before Jude wrote this, wrote this epistle. Is this looking for the mercy of regeneration? No. What's this looking for? The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being united unto him. This is the blessed hope of the believer. The Apostle Paul said, I know that the Lord is going to give me a righteous crown in that day, and he's going to give a crown to all those that look for his appearing and that love his appearing. Are you looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life? Or are you looking for your next raise? Or you're looking for your next baby? Or you're looking for your career? Or you're looking for your first car? I know some of you have all those things that you're looking for. And to look for them is not wrong. But what, what are you looking for most of all? We should be looking for the most glorious, magnificent Savior and King and Prince and Lord that the world has ever imagined coming for us to present us blameless and harmless to God our Father as the children which God had given to Him by election. That's what we should be looking for. He's going to burn up this world. Everything you can buy, everything you can drive, every everything that you can paint has a hot future because God's going to burn it up. Marriages, you're not going to be married in heaven. Instead of looking forward to getting married, look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never seen beauty. You've never seen strength. You've never seen dominion. You've never seen power. You've never seen glory like the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor and majesty are before Him. Glory and dominion are around Him. Thousands, thousands minister unto Him. And He's going to come. He's coming soon. And that's what we ought to be looking for. But we get all caught up in looking for other things. Looking for a better job. Looking to get my degree over with. we got to do those things, but we want to be looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than being so sensual that we're worried about our degrees, our houses, our babies, our families, our jobs and our cars, our looks and our bodies when we should be looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me. Hear ye the word of the Lord. This is not my word. This is His word. This is what he wants to jam into 25-verse epistle called Jude. 
They separate themselves. They're sensual, having not the Spirit. They wander out of here because all they want to do is play with their belly button. Because they're belly worshippers. And we're going to have more of them. Thank you, Lord. Just keep it going. We'll keep replacing them with those who are looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. All they want to do is what feels good. Brethren, this is the word of the Lord to us. I know this isn't very comforting. It is if your heart's in the right place. Because it tells you that what happens in churches, God already told about it in advance. And he's about to give you some comfort. Verse 22, and of some have compassion, making a difference. When you see in a church those that are weak, those that are vulnerable, those that are modestly, minor, in a small way, falling away from the faith, you show them compassion. And you go and you gently rebuke them. You gently warn them. You gently press them. You gently embrace them. You gently lead them back into the way of righteousness. Okay, we've had this huge chasm described to us. The righteous, the wicked. When we see one of the righteous starting to slip into drift, away from their steadfastness, we go and we embrace them, we pull them back, we win them back, we woo them back, we encourage them back, we comfort them back, we show compassion. We're we're slower about it, we're more careful about it, we're delicate about it. And if some have compassion, this is Bible soul winning right here. We do not believe that by any effort or any amount of money we can get a single name into the book of life. But we can certainly help our brethren when they start to slip away from their steadfastness in holy living or their confidence in the holy doctrine of our church, they need to be brought back. And if some we show compassion, we're gentle about it, we're meek about it, we bear their burdens with them, we encourage them. But then there's another category. Verse 23, and others, save with fear, pound them, use salt, warn them, describe the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ if they do not amend their ways. The Apostle Paul would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's not having compassion. That's showing the terror of the Lord. And that's what it means when it says, and others, save with fear. Put the fear of God into their souls. Put the fear of God into their ears. The fear of God can be taught. David said in Psalm 34, 11, Come here, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It can be taught. And some deserve that. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. There's no time to be gentle. There's no time to be delicate. Grab them and rebuke them and warn them and do it harshly that they're in sin and they need to come out of it. When the Lord came and got Lot and his wife and his two daughters out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, out of the city of Sodom, did they sit there, did they sit there and spend a month's vacation with them telling them that things could get bad here? Or did they take them by the hand and lead them out of that city? They took them by the hand and that's what we have right here. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. The fire of God's judgment. And put that fire right up before their eyes that God is going to punish you. It doesn't have to be fire and it doesn't have to be hell fire. This, these, are, these are saints that are slipping. Put the fear of God into their souls for what they're doing. 
Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You hate everything that they have fallen into. You hate their sins. You don't deal gently with them. You don't, you don't look at them as having a weakness. You look at them as spotting their garment and spotting up the church because they're living in sin. And so you put the fear of God before their eyes and you jerk them out of the fire. This is a soul winning class. The, the way we believe in soul winning is James 5, 19 and 20. Listen very carefully. My brethren, if any of you, so we're talking about brethren. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, err from the truth, you are in error. If any of you do err from the truth, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way, shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. That is Bible soul winning. It is not taking a goat and making him a sheepy. It is not taking a reprobate and making him elect. It's taking a slipping, falling, backsliding elect person and getting him back in the way of righteousness and that is all that is laid upon the readers of the New Testament epistles. Never are we told to get anyone's name in the book of life. There's only one apostle and prophet and high priest that can get a name in the book of life. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ and God by Him. And those names have been written there before the foundation of the world. But when we see men slipping, then we need to make a distinction. If they're weak, if they're vulnerable, if it's just a modest slip, if it's not, if they're not rebellious, then we show some compassion and we embrace them back in. We encourage them back in. But if they've gone further, and you can find that out very quickly, then you blast them. You put the fear of God before their eyes and you jerk them out of the city of Sodom and you hate the garments spotted by the flesh. You, you can't stand anything about the sin that they're in. There is no comfort for them. It saved them. The Bible can be very concise when it wants to be, can it? I mean, look at this epistle. It's time to close. So, our beloved brother Jude writes, Now, now here at the end, now after I've said all those things about the blackness of darkness being reserved for the wicked, about Enoch describing the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all? After having said all that, after having told you that there are men that are going to creep into the churches, and after telling you that you need to show some discretion and distinction in how you try to save them from their errors, as they slip under the effects of these false teachers and brethren, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. There is one being that has all the ability and all the ability we need. Ability is the power to do work. Ability is the strength to get something done. Now unto him that is able. This description that we're about to have is not our preservation from practical falling. This is our preservation from legal falling, from vital falling, from eternal falling. How do we know that? We know it on several counts. First of all, Jude has already given us an example in verse 5 of Israel having been saved out of Egypt. All fell. They were not preserved. 
So this is not practical falling. This is a comforting two verses to tell us that the mist of the blackness of darkness is not ours. Our reservations are made in heaven, where we have an eternal inheritance that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for us. The following phrase tells us, and to present you faultless. This cannot be practical. Is there anyone that's going to be faultless practically? But we're going to be presented faultless. The fall of Israel in one five tells us that there are those that fall. And it's the Scripture's overall emphasis about our practical frailty, but divine preservation that will not let us fall from grace. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing. That is God's love of us will see us safely into heaven. But there is practical falling because when false teachers get into churches, they overthrow the faith of some. But having your faith overthrown does not mean that God is going to lose His preserving power of keeping you in His election, Christ's justification, the Spirit's regeneration, and their planned glorification of your soul. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling. Nothing is going to happen to you, brethren, though your churches are going to be torn by strife and false doctrine and by wicked men and wolves that creep in among you. Unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestinated us, this is God's operation of salvation that is absolutely sure. And we don't have to fear, though that we are going to be beset with tempests and troubles by men. Unto Him that is able... Oh, the Lord has all the ability. He is able to call those things which be not as though they were. He is able to use glorified in the past tense, thousands of years before it was fulfilled, because He has all the ability. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and believing that what he had promised, he was, he was able also to perform. Romans chapter 4. This is what we believe. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory. He is going to get us all the way to the glory of God. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is where we end up in and of ourselves. But God is going to get us into His glory faultless. With no ability, with no possibility of us falling. And what are we going to be like in that condition? With exceeding joy. With exceeding joy. You know, I've been asked before, is that God's joy or our joy at being presented in such a way? I would go with the emphasis of Scripture. Since the Bible doesn't tell me that God's going to get all excited about this event, He's been excited about the whole plan of salvation, and I don't, I'm not ridiculing the idea. The emphasis of Scripture is this. And let me read to you one text of several. But rejoice. When you're suffering persecution as a Christian, rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, so we know we're talking about the same thing, before the presence of His glory, when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. With exceeding joy. So now unto Him that is able... 
to present you, no, to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You're not going to be scared. You're not going to be worried. You're going to be filled with exceeding joy because God has the power and he's going to exercise that power in presenting you faultless before his own glory. Now unto him, since he's doing all that for us, what should we give him in the way of praise? To the only wise God, our Savior, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father is a Savior in his own way, but the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior more particularly. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory. Remember Psalm 96? We give him glory with our praise and with our mouths. To this Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. He has all, he deserves all the honor that we can give him because he's surrounded with glory and majesty. He deserves all the humility and respect for his power because he's got all the dominion and power, both now and ever. We should give it to him now in our assemblies because we're going to give it to him in eternity, but we should give it to him now and forever. Amen. Amen. Be it so in truth. It is indeed the truth of God's word. Brethren, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, ungodly men, who have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. Then he describes them. Then he describes judgment. Then he describes them. Then he describes their judgment. Then he describes them. Then he shows us how we should be different from them. And then he shows us how we should save God's saints when they're slipping. But don't be discouraged by any of these things, brethren. Jesus Christ and his apostles told us they would happen. And in spite of all that happening in the churches, don't you ever get worried about a thing. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and he is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. You will never fall away from God's redeeming grace. He will present you faultless before his glory, and you will be full of exceeding joy. And what should we give him? We should give him the glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forever through eternity. Amen. Brother Eric, come and lead us in singing those two verses. Let's all stand together and sing the last two verses of Jude.